Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from clinical development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. Today, we're very excited to welcome Dr. Oz Azam. Uh, Oz is the CEO of Empyrean. He is a trained OBGYN. He left clinical practice in 1998 to join industry and has spent the last 24 years in what he is considered a biotech sandwich, which I'm very excited for us to talk about today, having really spent a lot of his career in big pharma with a lot of spattering of biotech experiences along the way that he's really learned a lot from that we'll have the opportunity to dig into today. We'll really hit three key themes. One, really kicking off, focusing on innovation in biotech and really what, what it means to lean into new innovation. We'll talk about agile organizational development and building different kinds of teams for different needs and different stages of your organization. And we'll also focus on the criticality of mentorship and growth and culture in organizations and what it really takes to lead into your network to get where you want to go in your career. So welcome to the show, Oz. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you both today. So I do want to go to that um, that brief anecdote that I just called out, your biotech sandwich, if you will. Uh, you spent a lot of time kind of coming in and out of biotech and learning a lot from big pharma that you've applied throughout your career. And I would love to start off today's show by just hearing a little bit about your experiences in biotech along the way and what you've learned that's really gotten to you to where you are now. Yeah, so that, um, that filling story or the, the hamburger or whatever you want to call it, right, depending on your preference. So, yeah, it's a, a story of basically two halves. It initially started my career for the first decade, my professional life sciences career in big pharma, and then navigated companies like, you know, Pfizer, J&J were my sort of main early years of the, of the industry. Then I had a stint within a very innovative biotech called Aspreva, uh, that was very successful uh, in its day. Then I started my own company right at the time when 2008 with the first credit crisis happened, which uh, those who've been around long enough will recall. Uh, and then after that, I went back into big farm. I spent nine great years at Novartis, where I held various senior leadership roles, both in the US and globally and in Switzerland. And then I came back to really my desire, which was to be in very cutting edge, entrepreneurial, fast moving, fast paced biotechs. And most recently I was at a great company called Team Unity, which I built from seed stage through to, uh, you know, it's uh, more formative years, five years there. And I'm really, really excited about now the introduction of Empyrean uh, Neuroscience uh, as a new company as well. And throughout that story, and, and what I've found really fascinating is, you know, before the show we were talking, you, you gave us more detail about your background was, it seemed over the last, I'll, I'll make up timeframes, but 10, 15 years, you've really leaned into doing new things in the industry, whether you were in big pharma and you were carving out the CAR-T business or what you were building at Team Unity, you were always trying to design and build something new and really change the nature of what a therapeutic could look like and change the practice of medicine. And, and that's really what you're doing at Empyrean. So can you talk to us a little bit about what it means to build something completely new where the in healthcare institution in America is really not even prepared for what you're trying to introduce and what that means to design and build that. And then we'd love to translate that into what you're building now. Yeah, so uh, it's a billion dollar question, right? Why do it? Who does it? 
I think you've got to be wired a certain way to want to do it. And it goes back to your individual level of benefit, risk, and comfort with innovation. And I think I've always been uh, somebody who's curious by nature, very comfortable pushing the envelope scientifically, ethically, and appropriately. And so for me, you know, I was very, very fortunate because, um, you know, some things are you, you plan and some things you're not, you don't plan. So for example, if I give you an example, when I was at Novartis, you know, I had, you know, great leadership, senior roles in regulatory affairs. I was the head of development for the US, was a chief medical officer for a while, uh, you know, US and in Switzerland. And then I had this amazing opportunity of building out the CAR-T business from scratch as a sort of founding management team member. So that was something that, you know, I was very fortunate because not all big farmers allow you that opportunity. Novartis has that sort of DNA to it that they they will take chances. I mean, they got into vaccines years ago when nobody wanted to do it. They got into stem cell therapies decades ago before somebody else did, anybody else did. And so I, I think I was lucky as well. It's not, not just about what you make, but the luck that you have and the organizations you pick. And one of the reasons I went to Novartis was that I saw them not just as a, a, a giant big farmer, but I did see that sort of desire to push the envelope and look at new therapeutic strategic areas. So some of it's planned, some of it's unplanned. Um, so hopefully that can be a flavor of, of how those events have occurred. Absolutely. And how is that all translated to what you're building now? So Empyrean is truly building a new class of medicine. Yes. Yeah, so from uh, a platform and company perspective, um, Empyrean is a genetic engineering company in neuroscience. And what we're specifically trying to do is to genetically engineer small molecules from different species of uh, fungi and plants with a view to creating human therapeutics. And nobody's ever done that before. But, you know, when I, when I looked at this opportunity, you know, after having spent a decade in cellular therapies and gene therapies and sort of the learnings of developing CAR-Ts, this really caught my imagination that, you know, what is possible if you bring together sort of the same sophistication and rigor of T-cell genetic engineering to a kingdom and species that have been undervalued and underappreciated? And can you get that neuroscience revolution and say the genetic engineering CRISPR evolution to meet with a view to actually, you know, thinking the unthinkable, nobody's ever done this before. And the more I looked at it, the more I saw huge potential for patients. Uh, in areas like neuropsychiatry and neurology, but potentially in other therapeutic disease areas in the future as well, to be determined, uh, depending on how the platform develops and evolves. So I'm really, really excited about what we're going to be doing uh, in Empyrean over the next uh, you know, year or two. We're a preclinical company with ambitions to be in the clinic in a year from now. We're looking at introducing the world's uh, first uh, botanical that is a genetically engineered mushroom whole product that contains psilocybin for treatment for patients suffering with disorders such as major depressive disorders. Um, and so, you know, a huge unmet need area, but a very novel way to um, attack the problem, the unmet need. And so, yeah, I'm applying a lot of the principles of genetic cellular engineering I've learned. And I was really fortunate to be taught by great people like, you know, Carl June, Bruce Levine, like, you know, people who are real players in the field and, and teams of people who really, really taught me so much, you know, your own employees at companies who are real subject matter experts. As a leader, you're only the voice piece for the people that you represent at the end of the day. And so now we're, we're charting unknown territory and we're doing it at a time which is frankly an incredibly difficult market. 
you know, we're, we're dealing with significant headwinds. You've seen the macroeconomic environment. So it's not the easiest time to be an innovator. So the innovator's dilemma is always there in front of you. You know, how do you fund and capitalize companies like this? How do you convince people of the value? How do you incubate companies for the foreseeable future when access to capital is going to be limited? So these are very interesting times to be an innovator, but, you know, innovation doesn't stop. And I'm always a believer that it's when you go through some of these more darker market moments that great things emerge. So I'm, I'm really excited and jazzed about what we're going to be doing at Imperium. As I say, we're a small company, nine people, very lean, efficient, and we get stuff done very quickly, which is kind of the nice thing about small organizations, the, uh, the ability, the nimbleness of a company at this stage. And all companies evolve and grow and it will not stay like this forever. But it sure is a lot of fun when you're in the stages, when you can wear different hats, when you can get different things done and really sort of have a canvas in which to draw your story. That's the exciting thing about biotech. So you've got to have that kind of appetite to do that. You know, some colleagues are not wired like that. They prefer more structure and form, right? So biotech, early stage biotech may not be the thing for them. They may gravitate more to more mature opportunities where there's a biotech that has established as a platform is maybe in the clinic. So it really depends on you reflecting on yourself on what you're good at, what you're enjoying and what your level of risk taking is really at the end of the day. I'm gonna follow up with a question with regards to neuroscience. And then I would like to transition to the resources that you just brought up and how do you get things done with the limited resources. Uh, with How did you specifically come up with a neuroscience focus? I know that's where you started your career uh, a decade ago or so in neuroscience. Uh, was there a specific reason or data set that kind of uh, made you make that decision to focus on neuroscience or, or was there another reason? Part of it, uh, Ramin, was the fact that, you know, it was uh, already in play for Imperian as a company. Part of it was my curiosity and focus as well. So what, why neuroscience? I mean, neuroscience still remains an area of huge unmet need and huge market opportunity. Aging populations you know, the need for treatments in Alzheimer's, other areas, we're seeing, you know, all the challenges that are in the field, we see excitement and then, you know, um, not failure, but uh, as much as, you know, roadblocks for drugs in that area. You know, I, and I think going back to my own personal journey in neuroscience, you know, my first sort of foray really into neurosciences in a major way was when I first started my career in neuropathic pain. So an area that is still poorly understood, but mechanistically now more understanding treatments emerging, but really the paradigm hasn't changed for pain much in the past two, three decades. And then I was really fortunate at Novartis because I had the opportunity to look at everything in neurosciences, but my main focus in neuroscience at Novartis was working in MS, uh, a neuroinflammatory T-cell based etiological disorder, which has immunology, has neurology, has everything that, you know, and it's probably even my first foray into T cells, really, when I think about it, because T cells are implicated in MS. So, you know, that I think there was a bias in my mind because I'd worked in the space for sure. And I, I enjoy it scientifically. I'm, I'm a pluripotent guy when it comes to science, as long as the science is interesting, I don't care. I love science, right? No matter what the disease area is, I, I've never viewed myself as a subject matter expert, although maybe the past 10 years because of my CAR-T and T-cell background, people see me as an expert in that area, but I, I don't view myself that way. I, I view myself as a broad-based drug development kind of guy. Um, so, and then part of the story was the fact that the company had already made inroads at a seed stage 
to focus on uh, neuroscience, but it remains a highly, un, uh, highly attractive and underserved area. Um, particularly if you look at fields like neuropsychiatry, you look at schizophrenia, look at the areas of depression, take depression as an example, which is going to be a key area for us. I mean, there hasn't been a revolution in psychiatry for over 30 years. I mean, the last revolution was the introduction of SSRIs. And SSRIs, when you look at data objectively, at best, you're getting 30 to 40% responses, maybe 50 for a short period of time, but chronic treatments that, you know, don't always pan out, you get treatment resistant depression, and then look at the recent pandemic and how that's highlighted the, the huge, even further unmet need when it comes to mental health and neuropsychiatric conditions. So hopefully I gave you a sense around I me. Mean, partly it was my desire and focus, but partly also was the, the circumstances where the company was already looking at this from a sort of initial concept perspective. And to me, it made sense. It's an underserved area, huge potential opportunity, and it's exciting. That's amazing. It seems like everything is coming together very nicely. Let's hope so. Science has a way of surprising you, right? Good and bad. Good and bad, of course. They always do. And I guess my last question with regard to you know, the, the new therapeutic class that you're building at Empyrean, you've spoken about the platform and what the potential is, and especially in the neuroscience space, there's such a huge unmet need. How are you thinking about prioritizing your portfolio, the targets that you're going after and what you're going to bring to market? And in prior conversations on this show, we've, we've talked a little bit about the balance of really leaning into a platform approach versus being really specific on a real clear therapeutic target and what you're building in that space. So how are you balancing those two pieces? And can you talk to us about your near-term portfolio prioritization and where you're focusing? Yeah. So, you know, I've grown up listening to two sets of advice over the years, right? So some people say you're either a platform company and that's your focus, or you're a product therapeutic company. And I think the inconvenient reality is you're somewhere uh, in the land of both usually. Unless you're very, very early upstream with a platform that needs validation, where clearly you are a discovery research type company versus a periclinical emerging clinical company. So I think it's always the yin and yang, right? It's always a push and pull of, do you focus on the platform and do you focus on the lead asset and programs and how do you prioritize? And that is always the number one challenge. And, and what I've learned is that, you know, whatever your strategic plan is year one, it's never going to be a strategic plan in five years from now. So you have to deal objectively and you have to be able to pivot. That's the, the hallmark of being a biotech CEO. All best laid plans of mice and men, as they say. Um, and so for a company like Imperium, you know, we have an incredible platform that has huge potential, but we have to be incredibly smart where we focus our resources and effort. So our number one priority is that we have a developed a lead candidate that is now undergoing IND enablement studies with a view to getting into the clinic. So this is the world's first genetically engineered whole mushroom product where we have successfully engineered uh, a mushroom species to overproduce um, psilocybin as one of the active alkaloids uh, in the product, but also increasing other rarer alkaloids because we believe that, you know, there is the benefit potential of the synergistic effects of different components working together, produce a better result in a human setting versus than just a single synthetic product working on one receptor. Um, and that is a laser-like focus for us as a company, because that's going to create the greatest value as we develop that and get that into patients. 
However, we also have that platform that's delivered that ready now and being actively explored for the next generation of assets to be emerging. But there is always that push and pull of how much resource. We're a nine-person company, right? Which is where I think we'll talk about companies at different stages and how you evolve and why we built a specific model at this time in our lives, which is you know, partnering with groups like SSI. Uh, because it's the right model for this, right? And just like leaders are for seasons, there are models for seasons, right? To get, to get you where you need to. So this push and pull is always going to be there and you have to constantly evolve it. And you also have the courage. You also have to have the courage scientifically in business wise to say no and, and put things on the shelf, which is always painful to do. And we've even had those dialogues at an early stage where, you know, clearly you think about the kingdom of fungi and plants. That's an extraordinary huge opportunity, right? So we can go in many different directions scientifically, especially when you have very creative entrepreneurial scientists as well. But you're going to have control and focus. And that's the job of the leader, right? To paint the canvas and show, you know, this is what makes sense for the company at this time. doesn't mean to say you ignore other things, but you're going to have to incubate those in a much more judicious manner. Then as funds arise, as financings happen, as you achieve success, success become success, right? So you've got to have success and milestones and show deliverables, and then good things will happen. You don't show those milestones happening, then nothing happens, right? And so that's always the yin and yang of biotech, of how do you focus and pick that one thread that you know you can really march forward where a lot of investors and folks are going to focus on, but at the same time, you can showcase and say, and if we get this right, look at the amazing potential that we have here. I mean, that's, that's how we do things at Imperium. And Oz, I mean, it's your background so fascinating. You've been with companies, 100,000 people plus, right? I think Novartis is, is close to 130 or 140,000. Uh, you've been with companies much less than that. And you have also uh, started your own company with nine people, right? Uh, so you've, you've seen what works, what doesn't work. You've seen the best, you've seen the worst. Uh, and the resource and being resourceful is always... A challenge, right? Uh, especially with the smaller biotech companies, but although even with big companies, it's resources is still limited. It's not. It's never unlimited. And the mindset of fixed resource allocation or linear algorithm uh, that you've talked before about doesn't necessarily apply. How does one? How did you pivot from having all the resources, for example, in the CAR T uh, side and at Novartis? to going back to a really smaller startup, nine, nine people company, how do, you, how do you pick, where do you start from and how do you outsource? How do you decide about sequencing your resource needs and outsourcing some of those needs? So it's a billion dollar question, right? So you talked about, I think the other day we talked about this linear algorithmic fixed model, right? That what I meant was that, was that in larger organizations, there are usually pre-baked algorithms for programmatic resource allocation, right? So you see within the world of a program that is phase one, moving into proof of principle setting phase two, that you need X people in regulatory, X people in program management, X people in, you know, um, uh, data management, biostatistics, et cetera, clinical development. And, and that, that is done because the company needs command and control of a huge ship. It's, it's, a, it's a, it's a you know aircraft carrier that isn't easy to move, right? And within that, you, you kind of have to play that game. 
And so you build your budgets and plan according to, well, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to need X number of people because that's how it's done in another program. So I very much grew up in that environment. But even then, you know, a company like Novartis was very good at challenging. And, and I think the beauty was I was very fortunate that I got to build this business scientific R&D unit within a big behemoth, but was kind of firewalled a bit. So I had a, a degree of freedom where I could build and try different models. And at some point, the scale of the model is to a point where you just grow big, right? Because of the necessity of the business and that happened in Novartis, right? So when, it, when, it, when I moved to Biotech, it is really hard. It's a very different mindset. So when I was building out Team Unity, it was myself and another guy for a year, Michael Cristiano, uh, who was my chief business officer. He and I started the company. But we had a very interesting model there because we were doing all of our research through University of Pennsylvania with Carl June and the labs, the June labs. So it was a very symbiotic model where we were front facing in terms of fundraising, strategic thinking, et cetera, but the backroom operations were all in an academic unit. And then slowly as we raised finances, secured our series A, then we started our build. And I think the build was fast, right? You know, that those first 10, 15, 20 employees that you hired, that's the, the heart of the company, right? So that happened relatively fast because we had the capital to do it, right? And then you stage your build according to what you want to do and, frankly, what your investors advise and your boards advise, right? Um, and so that was a very different model. Um, and, you know, I made I had huge success in the model. I, I made some mistakes and blunders like all CEOs do. You know, some things, for example, I made assumptions around, hey, such and such a person was great working with me in Novartis. They would be a great fit here. And it was interesting in the early days when I contacted people who I thought would be perfect for the fit. When we assessed them in that environment, they weren't the right fit. And, you know, the default was I'll go to that person because if they did that role there, they clearly can do the role here. But even in that first six months of where we didn't do any hiring, first year we didn't do any hiring, it was me and Michael. We saw, right, that, you know, everybody doesn't fit in their function in a different environment. That was the first thing I had. And so, you know, you, you learn quickly, right? That you throw those assumptions out of the window and you better quickly. And I've always been a big believer in diversity. I, I don't mean the typical diversity and inclusion metrics that people talk about in corporate dashboards. I frankly think that most of that is a facade. But what I really care about is diversity in teams, right? True diversity, right? Because if you hire a diverse team, it's not just your phenotype as a human being, but what you bring to the party and the table. And I think that was the that the penny really dropped for me in the second year, which was, no, it, it's not about creating clones of what I knew in my business unit in Novartis. It's about creating a very different ecosystem. And then you start to think differently, right? So these were the challenges I faced building out startup and a buy. And I, I think every company builder goes through these anxieties and pains and some people work out, some don't. But I think the first thing is, if it's not working out, do the person a favor, your employee a favor, and yourself, and cut the cord quickly, and do the right thing. Because letting them stay in an environment where they're not going to be successful, and you're not successful, people get unhappy. That's one thing about biotech, which is people say there's so much turn in, turnover in biotech. And it isn't really, but it perceives like that. But companies that are turning people over, and not necessarily because it's a a, they've hit a wall, like Team Unity, for example, my company, we had a very legitimate clinical setback and we restructured the company. That happens to companies all the time. But you, it's not unusual to see changes in the C-suite or changes in, in uh, level of management. 
and it, and it's it's just the way it is so because you're small and nimble you you get exposure much earlier there aren't layers to hide big pharma you can hide out right a smaller a smaller biotech you have to have a very agile organization otherwise you won't survive do you do you find it more challenging to attract the right talent experience expertise when when you're a company of 10 20 30 people versus when you are I think the challenge is that it's, it's, it's not difficult to get active interest. I've never had that an issue in biotech. What is difficult is landing the right talent that you want, right? The, I mean, the field of genetic engineering cell therapies is, is ferociously competitive, right? Because, you know, it's a field that's exploded very quickly and not many people knew about the field or had practical experiences, but now it's very different from 10 years ago. You know, when I first got in cell therapies, it wasn't that much talent. It was talent that had to be developed. Now that talent's been developed. So different, different season that we're in now. I, I think it's hard landing who you think is the right player for the team. I don't think biotechs have shortage of people. And now with restructures going on in big pharma and things like that, I don't think there's a shortage of talent. I think there's still a war for talent for landing the right phenotype and chemistry and fit for your company. And Oz, what is that right phenotype? Um, that I'm sure Kim, I see it knocking her head, asking the same question, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to know what, what, what does it take? What are those three to five things that is the, the phenotype or a profile? And so look, I'm, I'm speaking for myself and my company and my desires, right? So I, I wouldn't want, you know, listeners to think this is the, 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 uh, formula or a template for every biotech, right? Or every small hungry organization, but look, the, what springs to mind, right? So you have to have a passion to really enjoy science, right? And love it and, and be a nerd, right? And, and dig in and dig in, but you've got to know when to stop, right? So that curiosity is really, really important. I look for that, right? You know, if I'm looking for a subject matter expert in an area, how deep are they going to go? And can they go even further, right? So that, that's, that's a trait that, that I look for. Uh, I'd also want to see resilience and tenacity, right? Track record of people who've, wherever they've been, big or small farmer, really showcasing the challenges that they face and, and authentically, right? What was your role in that? You know, what did you do? Success or failure doesn't matter, right? Because successes build you, failures build you, right? So really showcasing, you know, what was tenacious and resilience about what you did? Because what we do is very high risk. Let's not beat around the bush. Most companies in, in biotech don't come through. Every day, if you see a company launching, you see two other companies right now folding. That's the nature of biotech, right? So it requires tenacity, you know, resilience. So I, I look for that. I think you also look for, you know, trust. Is this somebody that I can trust and they can trust me in return and they're going to stick, right? Because there's nothing worse in the biotech world than incubating, growing a talent because they bring something to the table, but you're passing your knowledge to them to have them walk out the door because they're a company hopper or whatever. Nobody wants that, right? So I try and look for those traits of look, and there are legitimate reasons why some people move every two years, right? An M&A happened or something else happened. Other cases, you might see patterns of people jumping around. So I always advise people, right, you know, show that you've had some stickiness at a role within a company. I was really fortunate to come down in the I was there nine years. In nine years, I had four different roles. You know, so on paper, I was like every two years, I got pushed into a new role. But 
you know, I was that so, but I could demonstrate a linkage, right? Of, yeah, I did this, but then I got moved to this, et cetera. And so being with an organization for 10, 20 years is not a bad thing. If you can show you've demonstrated movement and growth and development professionally. And in smaller companies, it's different because smaller companies by nature may not survive more than three years, four years, right? So legitimate changes happen, right? So you, you look for patterns and you look for people being comfortable telling their story, right? And the last thing I look for is fun, guys. I don't want to work with people that I don't want to have fun with. I mean, life's too short, life's too boring. I, you know, you want to be in a culture which is dynamic, where you work hard, you play hard. And, you know, the world has changed a lot with the pandemic, right? And so we're doing much more of this than being together, right? Uh, and, and I think, frankly, that CEOs that visualize that people are going to walk into buildings again and everyone be together and have come by yard, they're, they're deluded. You know, the world has moved in a way that will never change. So you have to have different skills as a team leader, builder, of how do you get cohesion in a culture built in a semi-virtual environment? So very, I didn't grow up with that. None of us grew up with that. I'll tell you in the past three, four years, three years or so, we've all had to abide by that. And now you're seeing, right? It's the norm. You know, big farmer, small farmer. You've got two groups of CEOs, CEOs that say, I will demand that all my employees come in. Good luck to he or she. And you've got those that are saying, well, I've got to, I've got to mold my thinking and my world to adapt to what is the reality of the, the world we're living now in this globalized, fast-moving, Zoom-centric world that we live in. So hopefully I gave you some themes there on, on how I think about what I the traits I look for. for. Oz, I love that you called out that fun is an attribute that you're looking for. A little insight into the consulting sector. We call that the airport test. Do you want to be at the airport with somebody if you're stuck and your, your plane's delayed? If you like them enough to, to be stuck there and have a drink, you probably want to work with them. So definitely, definitely appreciate that. How are you thinking about, um, you know, those are such important attributes in bringing people onto your team. But we also know that, and, and you mentioned this a little earlier on in the conversation, you're building a really agile team. It's not just your nine FTEs, it's other partners and a multitude of partners that you're really surrounding the organization with. How are you building a culture around this extended team that ultimately is, is propping up and engaging the organization to meet your milestones? So, I mean, there's some basics, right? Just good human nature, right? How you communicate, how you be transparent. So look, if, if somebody is on the team you know, they're from the SSI group or any other group, right? I mean, they're your team, right? So make them feel like they're your team, right? <laughs> Which means you make time. You know, you if you need to have a one-on-one, -on -one, you have a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you need to be deliberate in your communications. Yeah, you have to trust them, right? Um, and, and that's just the hallmarks of any team. So I think the first thing is when you do a hybrid model, and I'm a huge fan of a hybrid model for companies at our stage, especially companies that are research translational looking to move to the clinic. One of the risks that I've seen, and I've been victim of it before myself, right, is that you overbuild and you overbuild. And if something goes wrong, you miss a milestone, then you're in a position where it's, what do I do now? I don't want to do a restructure, but how do I manage costs? How do I do this? So, you know, one of the schools of hard knocks and lessons I've learned is be smart about the timing of hiring. It doesn't mean to say you're not going to grow the company and hire. But look for, I call them augmented models, right? So we have an augmented model now with a number of players, right? I mean, you know, we really have a, a clinical development, translational operations that's working through partners like SSI. And then we have benchtop wet lab research 
genetic engineering that we own. And it's a beautiful combination, right? Where we can stage in at this time of the company's history, where we want to remain, we want to remain agile. We want to remain fast. We don't want too much bureaucracy, but we want to have the right discipline of functions getting involved. We've decided to build this model and it, and it applies for GNA and legal as well, right? You know, for finance and legal where it's, it's virtual, it's augmented. And it works incredibly well, but it requires the CEO and the C-suite to be very disciplined, right? You know, I do, you know, a lot of different hats. Like I'm the guy who does IT. I do, you know, a lot of the finance stuff with my controller and that's okay, but you've got to want to do that. So it's not everybody's, as they say, cup of tea. It, it depends on you as an individual and what you sign up for. And certain groups just don't subscribe to that, right? It works for us, but I think it's a phenomenal model because it allows me degrees of freedom to flex up and flex down. And look, and if it doesn't work with an individual, you can say a request, could we have somebody else that is a better fit for the company for these reasons? And it's just, you can do it, right? Um, so, I mean, that's the advantages I see of an augmented model for a company at this stage. Now, then there comes a point where it doesn't make sense. You need a resource internally as an FTE to lead a certain part of the organization, right? So then you then you start to scale and bring down your augmenta augmentation model and you switch more to an FTE model. That's okay too, right? It will come with time. But we are as a company right now, the sort of peri-clinical, about to be in the clinic in a year to 18 months, a lot of moving pieces, a lot of headwinds, a lot of things happening in the external environment, new innovation. This model makes perfect sense to us. I mean, that's a great advice, especially focusing on those that whole sequencing resource needs and be very strategic and selective of when, right, do you need exactly what and what type of a profile and attributes. Um, and I think another phenotype that perhaps to the, the solution providers or the, the uh, outsourcing model provi provides is the attribute of the people as well, that most of the time, I think you will see that the folks that are in a consulting role or they are in a partnership role with the company have the phenotype being more agile, more kind of thinking on their feet, being able to deal with uncertainty and ambiguity better, uh, because that's kind of what required from that job as well. Yeah, and I agree with you that because there's a there's a there's a um... What's the word I'm looking for? There's a restlessness there. You can spot it in people, right? Where they, they want to keep moving, they want to keep moving. And and so you look for that, right? And you want that in your teams anyway, right? And I think, you know, like I say, it's not, it's leaders for seasons and teams for seasons, right? And it's just getting that balance right. And, and it's an art, it's not a science. It definitely is. Uh, Oz, let's talk about, I think the other day you mentioned that the CEOs were, are one of the loneliest people on the planet. It's the loneliest job in the world. It's the loneliest job in the world. And, and you talked about it's critical to build uh, an executive leadership network, right? And you really don't, honestly, you don't have to be a CEO to build that. We, we all need that in our, in our career, throughout our career, to build that network. And you were very adamant about it. And it's, it seemed like you have a way of going about it that has been very effective for you. Can you talk about that and give us some advice how, does, how did you do it and how does one that not necessarily is a CEO should go about building that executive leadership networking? So, so it's a great question. So, I mean, it's evolved. My model evolved over time, right? And I'm sure this has evolved for other leaders and 
you know, people in our industry. I mean, in the early days, you it's about which team you get on, right? Which program, which asset you get on, right? When you're in big farming, oh, do I want to work on that program? I heard that team's really good and that program may launch that when I get onto that program. So in the earlier years of my career, I was very focused on that. And then I realized that I said, that's bullshit. You know, what, what you want to look at is who the leader is for that program or team and uh, how are they navigating it? Because, you know, sometimes the asset is what the asset is. It can be an average asset. But you've got a great team and a great leader. They can do wonders, right? You can have good assets and a terrible leader and the, the waste of space and time, right, and money. So, I mean, I evolved my thinking when I observed carefully and learned that, you know, actually getting hooked to good leaders is the, is the, is the trick as opposed to the program, right? And, and I'm talking in a specific reference of Big Pharma at that time point. So when you're in Big Pharma, your world is Big Pharma because that's all you really know. And you're surrounded by thousands of people, colleagues with seniority to you, people who've really done it time and time again, and you learn like a sponge. And through that, you realize who the people are that you want to go and network, right? And, and big farmers growing. Mean, J&J is a great example, you know, former buddy systems, mentorship. It was great. Same with Novartis, right? So you, you have those pre-baked lines where you may be in a formal mentoring program, right? Or you're a rising leader where they want to plug you in and exposure to different styles of leadership, right? So, I mean, that that was very prescriptive and, and um, thought through. And that was great because it works, right? In the earlier years of your career as a younger leader, moving up the ranks or learning how to navigate a business. And then as you, you know, go from having a lot of hair to no hair, you suddenly realize, right, there's a big, yeah, and you have a whole world world out there, and then and then as you become more comfortable in your therapeutic areas where you're working, you network more, you attend more networking events, right? You go to conferences, and part of the reason of going to conferences is not just the science, but who am I going to meet in the bar, and who can I network with, right? And you get to know people from other companies, and then you, it's amazing who you come across, right, in those settings, and you realize, hey, there's a whole world out there. And then, for example, when I was like in the last decade of my career, you know, I got heavily involved in the Alliance of Regenerative Medicine, an amazing advocacy, patient-centric, industry-sponsored organization that looks at every facet of cell and gene therapies. I met everybody who's who from both the CDMO side, the contracting side, the vendor side, and the company side, right? And that was amazing, right? Because you just get, you know, to know everybody and you know, hey, I need help in vector methodology or something, and you know exactly which person to go to, right? Or I'm having problems with this reagent. Hey, such and such I met deals with this. Maybe they can help out. So, I mean, there's that uh, immediate sort of sponsorship, but then you start to see CEOs in that setting more. So you develop CEO buddies. And there's, there's three or four people that I trust that I'm going to call. You know, one of them used to work for me is a better, more successful CEO than me. So I call him a lot. You know, there are other individuals that I've worked, um, you know, with who are great CEOs um, that, you know, were senior to me, maybe have now transitioned more into a different phase of their life. They're doing more boards, not operational work. So, you know, you, you build that buddy system of peer CEOs, right? And then, you know what? Ultimately, you always rely on people who were your best bosses, right? No matter where they are in the world, right? To lean on them. And that's kind of your, you know, your sort of more father figure that you would go to, right, for sage advice uh, around, you know, personal issues or professional issues, right? And then I think that the, what I've learned sort of most recent in my life in the past couple of years is um, mentorships comes from all guises and shapes, nothing to do with your own industry and sector. 
So, you know, recently I, I you know, I met somebody who's a, who's a, a, a poet and a, a, somebody who is a, an accomplished writer. You know, I'm learning so much from them in a very different relationship. He wouldn't view me as a mentor mentee, but I view a certain mentor menteeship kind of relationship because he gets me to think in ways I would never have thought. Why would I cross paths with somebody in the world of arts? being a life sciences guy, but it's amazing if you drop your blinkers and you start to think, you know, that, that there's a lot more to the world than meets the eye. It's amazing what you can learn from each other, right? Uh, and it's just a case of perspective and blinders. So I mean, I may be quirky about this. That's my perspective around mentoring. And, you know, again, stages of life, stages of professionalism require you to apply different approaches, but I will agree with you. It is the most loneliest job to be the CEO of a company especially a company itself, because you can't talk to anybody, right? The point you, you're making about seeking mentorship also outside of your your network, right? It makes a lot of sense because it does, it does give you a different perspective. And I think it feeds into your creativity and being innovative and, and things see completely different. That you know, it's all orthogonal thinking, right? Right. It's all orthogonal thinking, right? We need more of that, you know, because that's how... And, and you know, we're all victims to... I mean, we're a highly, highly regulated industry, guys, right? So we do things by the book, right? But there's a risk of that is that you become um, a, a cog in a wheel, right? Of mechanically deliver something to an FDA standard, regulatory standard, et cetera. So there's going to be an infusion of creativity somewhere along the way, right? To keep this machine innovative and moving in a very different way. It's also interesting. I recently met someone at a conference that came from another highly in regulated industry. I think they came from um, the aerospace industry. And they'd recently moved over to life sciences. And in their mind, it was a, such an easy parallel because they understood how to translate regulation into what it meant from a day-to-day -day basis and, and building products and medical devices. That's a great example. So, you know, if you look at air, the airline industry, which funny enough, I had to look at very heavily, believe it or not, when I built the car T business. Interesting. Because, of, um, you know, you think about security, risk management, assessment, how the aeronautical industry has to think about safety around planes. We were looking at safety of in the early days, right? Chain of identity, how you move a product, like, you know, human living cells that have been genetically engineered, how you move this through. So I actually spoke to people in the uh, aeronautical industry and I actually spoke to people in Dubai who ran the logistics of Dubai Airport. You know, it's amazing what you pick up when you think and talk to people in allied sectors, right? And I've had the pleasure of talking to people in the oil industry. You wouldn't think there was much in common with the oil industry and the gas and uh, oil industry. With that. There's a lot. There's a lot when you start to talk to people and say, oh, wow, we have that. It might not be the same, called the same thing, but there's a lot of analogies. The way, for example, that deals happen in the oil industry and mergers and acquisitions, there's a lot of similarities that uh, apply to pharma as well. And so, yeah, that, that vehicle of other industries, as you mature and get older in your career, I think is a really important thing. Thank you. Uh, I know as we've come to the end of our program, and this has been just a fascinating, uh, fascinating show. And I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge, expertise, all of your learnings in such a candid and uh, kind of uh, easy way that a pragmatic way that we can actually take some of these back and kind of apply it to to our day to day work. Uh, really appreciate the time. Thank you for your time. It's great hanging out with you today. Thanks, Kim. And congratulations. We're excited for Empyrean, seeing all of you're going to be building. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. 
Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.